Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Winston Preparatory School is a leading school network for students with learning disabilities. Learn more about Winston Prep and register for an open house at www.winstonprep.edu. Joining us now, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian is a a wonderful journalist. She writes for Axios. She's been reporting on China for many years. She's fluent in Chinese. And uh, she did such a good job that China decided to revoke her journalism credentials, which pretty much tells us all we need to know. Her uh, book is called Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Bethany, welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show today. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and I, I've started to read your book. I haven't quite finished it, but it's rather brilliant. I want to begin, Bethany, with where you begin, which is in the introduction and the run-up to COVID-19. Uh, just summarize for us exactly what China was about and what they did in those important three weeks. Sure. So, you know, as, as we all know now, there was a mysterious new virus that was uh, making people sick in Wuhan in December 2019. Uh, but for three crucial weeks, the local Chinese government authorities suppressed knowledge of it. They arrested, um, uh, they, they arrested scientists and doctors um, and did uh, you know, other, a variety of measures to try to suppress knowledge of what was happening. Now, after three weeks, the, the central Chinese government did act you know, did put a lockdown on Wuhan and, and did start taking measures to suppress the spread of the virus. But later, there was a, a study by public health um, specialists who found that those three weeks could have reduced the spread of cases by 96% if uh, measures had been taken earlier. And that's about exactly how long the cover-up lasted. And, and so, you know, this, what we've seen before during SARS in 2003 from the Chinese government system, the way that it motivates and incentivizes local officials to hide bad things happening in their district. This is something that had terrible implications for the rest of the world. 
So let's just repeat that, Bethany. So 96% reduction. In other words, 96% of the people that got ill and died from COVID would not have gotten ill and died had the Chinese government uh, had a, a system that encouraged and not even encouraged, allowed people to talk about this brand new virus that was started and spreading in Wuhan. They wouldn't let him talk about it. And that, and you talk about that beautiful uh, 31, 33-year-old doctor who made the uh, image of himself with the oxygen mask, who tried to talk about it, and he was shut down and he died anyway. Tell us about that. Right. Dr. Li Wenliang, he was one of the doctors who noticed that his patients were falling ill, very you know, seriously ill with some virus that seemed to be similar to SARS. And uh, when he tried to spread knowledge of this amongst his colleagues, other doctors, he was detained, I believe, on the evening of December 30th or 31st. He was detained by authorities and forced to sign a self-confession. But he you know, continued seeing these patients, continued treating them. And uh, he you know, became someone who you know, he started uh, after it was OK to talk about the pandemic. He started talking about it publicly. And what happened was he himself fell ill, which is ironic because he had been one of the doctors saying we're seeing human to human transmission, something that the Chinese government denied to the World Health Organization. And in late January, the World Health Organization tweeted saying we're not seeing human to human transmission, you know, which would be kind of a pre, you know, the sort of a a prerequisite for this being something that the rest of the governments in the world need to worry about. So he himself, you know, uh, caught this virus and and he died. Um, He was in the hospital. He, you know, posted this famous photo of him with an oxygen mask and he was very young and, and he died. And his death sparked this moment uh, in China. And you could tell even from, you know, thousands of miles away that there was this collective moment of grief and anger at the political system. Because on Weibo, which is China's version of Twitter, which is very heavily censored in real time, there was such an outpouring of grief and there was a hashtag, you know, we, I am Dr. Wenliang, you know, give us, we want free speech. So many people used that hashtag and were tweeting, you know, posting about this in real time that it, it, it blasted through the censors and made that hashtag the, the top trending hashtag on, on Weibo. And the censors, you know, quickly cracked down on it. And then a new hashtag instead of I want freedom of speech, it was we want freedom of speech was, you know, went up again. And it was, the Chinese Communist Party seems to have identified that moment uh, as a, a, an existential crisis for them, that there was such anger at the political system. Um, you know, by end of March, you know, there had been these huge nationwide lockdowns, very dramatic, the biggest, you know, pandemic lockdowns in the history of human civilization that deeply affected people's lives and people were so angry. And the CCP determined that they, that they must not just get rid of the, you know, eradicate the virus domestically, but eradicate even the sense of blame on the system and this, you know, widespread belief that the party was to blame for the pandemic. We're chatting with Bethany Allen. Bethany, your book is, um, your author on your book is Bethany Allen, but I'm, is, do you go by Bethany Allen Ibrahimian? Which, which name do you prefer? 
Well, you know, either one is okay. I just I just decided to use the shorter version of my name on the book. Okay. <laughs> either <laughs> one's fair. fine. I understand. Uh, it's Armenian, right? Ibrahimian? Is that right? It's an Armenian. It's actually Iranian. It's Iranian. Iranian, because usually yeah. I-E-N at the end is uh, Armenian. So that's interesting. You're, you're right about that. Uh, it's also actually Iranian. And even more confusingly, there are Armenians in Iran. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, <they're>, yeah. <laughs> well, Bethany, this is what I want to know. How did you learn to speak Chinese fluently? I learned in China. I, I first went there in 2004. Um, uh, as a study in a study abroad program and just really loved the Chinese people and culture, language and history. And um, I went back to China after I graduated and spent uh, four years there. And two of those years were in a complete immersion environment in school, uh, including a graduate program where I attended lectures in Chinese and wrote my papers in Chinese. Um, so it was, it was really through a, an immersion experience there that I learned. I was going to say, I could spend 20 years in China, and I still wouldn't be able to learn Chinese. That's an really impressive, Bethany. You must be quite a linguist. That's, I mean, to not grow up, it's a tonal language. It's not a phonetic language. It doesn't draw from the alphabet. The written Chinese is dramatically different than the sounding Chinese. That's a really impressive feat to do as an adult. Well, thank you, but I, it was really a passion of mine, so it, it never felt like work. It always, it always felt like a joy. So, and, and to do that, you must love the Chinese people. You must have a great admiration for aspects of the Chinese culture. It's got to break your heart about the Chinese government, and I know that you, you know, this book is really what it's about, how China weaponized its economy to confront the world. Um, and I like the title, by the way, to confront the world, not to beat the world, which I thought was very interesting mm. use of words. So uh, I want to just go back a little bit to COVID-19. So you ha there, there is this pivotal moment, and you write in the book that if the, if the government had been a little bit weaker, if there had been any kind of sense of, you know, that there had been any vulnerability or any other government in the world that might have been ready to topple. This might have been a toppling moment. But in fact, you say the Chinese government doubled down. What happened? That's right. And they, they doubled down in two different ways. First of all, with Xi Jinping launched what we now know, uh, you know, is widely um, recognized as China's zero COVID policy, where they didn't just aim to reduce infections. They aimed to eliminate the virus completely, which required um, a, a, you know, truly, I would say, totalitarian control of society, where they, uh, you know, would have these massive lockdowns, you know, bar people into their apartment buildings, um, have, a, you know, this new digital system where people had to swipe uh, in and out of all these checkpoints across their their cities and that was incredibly effective as we know china the chinese government did eliminate covid infections there and for about a year and a half the chinese people lived probably one of the freest and healthiest you know in the, one of the healthiest societies in the world because they didn't have the pandemic uh you know domestically when so much of the rest of us did um however the Chinese government also determined that they wanted to eliminate the idea or push, you know, do everything they could to change the narrative about the fact that the, the pandemic originated in China and was enabled by China's authoritarian political system. And this is really 
what the bulk of my book is about. You know, my years as a, as a journalist have been spent tracing the way that the Chinese Communist Party uses covert and overt forms of um, political interference, influence, disinformation, coercion, and repression to try to forcibly change and control what people can say and even think about Beijing. But those I, I, methods, you know, at, at this, yeah. at this, es- at the essence, Bethany Allen, this is my question at the essence, since you've lived in China and studied it, why do the Chinese people tolerate it and do they like it? That's, that's a very good question, and, it, and it's a complex question. And I, I want to emphasize that Chinese people, many of them, not all of them, many of them, in 2023, live far better lives than their parents. Their economic situation for so many people has dramatically improved. And when, you know, when, when a society is struggling with you know, basic elements of standard of living, having access to, you know, housing and food and healthcare, to have that when, when your parents didn't have enough of that is, you know, your, your top need as a human being. And so many Chinese people have that now. And so because of that, they do, many of them do believe that the Chinese Communist Party has overall done a good job and has led China through difficult times into a better place. And that is not wrong. However, the, the incredibly strict political and um, social controls that China's leaders implemented in China during the pandemic seem to have awoken so many middle-class Chinese to the reality that at the end of the day, they don't have basic freedoms, basic political freedoms, basic social freedoms that they would have if they lived in another country. And that seems to have created some really widespread disillusionment with the party. So do you think that with this sort of background of their basic um, human essentials being met, that there will be a yearning for freedom? I think that, you know, there's a combination here of the kind of information environment that Chinese people have lived in for so long that, um, you know, presents the party as the savior of China and presents outside forces, you know, for hostile foreign forces as trying to keep China down and harm Chinese people. You know, many Chinese people have been raised in this environment and they, and they do believe that. Um, and so I think it's, it's not, it's not super common for people, for, you know, most people to simply believe in the ideals of democracy as we do in the, in the U S and believe that those should be implemented in China. However, the excesses of the political system are now so readily apparent. But I do think more people than perhaps 10 years ago or even five years ago would like to have more freedom than they do and have more say over their own lives than they do. Bethany, can you stay with us? I really want to get a little bit deeper into your book in a moment. Can you stay with us in a bit for a bit? Yes, I can stay. Okay. We're going to be right back with Bethany Allen. The book is called Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. We'll be right back. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. We're chatting with Axios China reporter Bethany Allen Ibrahimian. Her book is called Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. So, Bethany, uh, give us some examples of the kind of stories that you broke, that you scooped, that show the lengths to which the government of China is interested in spying on us here in the United States and influencing our own policies here. Well, as I, I write in the book, um, there was a, a really a stunning example of this uh, in the early months of the pandemic in, in June. Uh, and, you know, as we all know, um, so many meetings switched to Zoom. And Zoom went from 10 million users at the end of 2019 to more than 300 million users wow. just a few months into the pandemic. Yeah, so big windfall for Zoom. Also, big windfall for China's security agencies because Zoom, although it is an American company, has about seven at the time had about 700 employees on its research and development team in China, which means that the Chinese government had access to those people. And what we saw was in May and June there were a number of U.S.-based accounts and U.S.-based meetings, including some Tiananmen anniversary memorial meetings held on Zoom that were in fact shut down. And so when I reported on this, um, Zoom confirmed to me that the Chinese government had asked them to shut these meetings down, even though they were being held on a U.S. platform, on U.S. soil, by U.S. citizens, uh, from U.S.-based servers, and then an account paid for, um, you know, owned uh, by a U.S. citizen, paid for with a U.S. credit card. Um, and so what we, what I, you know, was able to, with the, the Department of Justice launched an investigation, issued an indictment, and that indictment revealed that a Zoom employee in China who had been officially appointed by Zoom to be the liaison between Zoom and China's Ministry of State Security, which is its political and foreign intelligence agency, um, as its liaison, that employee had, at the request of China's intelligence agencies, gone further than his remit as a Zoom employee to actively surveil and spy on and shut down and interfere with meetings happening on Zoom outside of China that were against the Chinese Communist Party's core interests. And let me ask you this. That's an unbelievable story. Did Zoom, you said that the meetings were shut down. Were they shut down with the knowledge of the Zoom CEOs here, or were they just shut down by a lever in China? Um, 
the, the Zoom employee was able to communicate with U.S.-based employees to get them to shut the meetings down. Now, Zoom's CEO, who is uh, a Chinese-American named Eric Yuan, he knew that this employee named Julian Jean had this role, but he was not at that time, at the, you know, the moment these meetings were shut down, uh, there's no evidence that he was aware that that was happening in real time. So this employee just basically acted at the behest of the Chinese government. End of story. Uh, well, not quite, because the year before, so in 2019, the Chinese government blocked Zoom from accessing the Chinese market, where it also you know, was, was selling uh, its platform. And in order to gain back access to the market, and this, this access and denial of the Chinese market is a mechanism I, I write about extensively in my book, in order to gain that access back, Zoom agreed to formulate what was called a rectification plan, where it agreed to, to, to uh, surveil oh. Zoom meetings held in China, in China, in real time, and to do a better job of censoring and shutting down and reporting um, illegal, quote-unquote, illegal activity to China's security services. I have such but, a problem with that. Oh, I, I know, but it was only, that was only supposed to happen within the Chinese market. I know, but I have a problem clear, with that. It's still I, bad. Bad. Uh, let's just be clear. Let's just take a punctuation point and say that these companies that largely have capital based on a U.S. system of economy and freedom with limits. We're not, a, you know, we're not an anarchical society, but we're a dem- democratic society. We're a hell of a lot better than China. They take their money and their capital, and instead of exporting our values and promoting our values of freedom of speech, they go ahead because of the almighty dollar or the almighty Juan, whatever it is, or Rem, whatever it is over there, um, they go ahead and they... Ex- and they allow the Chinese values of censorship to gain sway. And I, I find that abhorrent, actually. I can't stand it. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I agree with you. Um, and I, I think that, you know, what, what my book, a point that my book makes is that, yes, censoring on behalf of the Chinese government and surveilling and handing over information about people's, you know, free speech to China's intelligence services is wrong and is abhorrent, as you say. And U.S. companies that do that in order to gain access to the Chinese market are simply behaving according to the rules of market capitalism as we have practiced it. Because there is no law in many cases. There is no U.S. law that makes that illegal. It doesn't have to be a law. You have to look inward to your own values, Bethany. We don't need a law. You have to decide who you are in this world and what your company stands for. I mean, I think I, you're certainly not wrong about that. My point from a pragmatic standpoint is that if that is all we leave it to, then this, just functionally speaking, the situation we have is we have the world's largest authoritarian one-party state, the, the entire mechanism of that government versus individual U.S. companies. That is why time and again, not from a moral standpoint, from a functional standpoint, who's going to win that battle? The Chinese government will win every time. And that is why a law, essentially if the U.S. were to pass more laws, they would be putting the U.S. government's strength and power on the side of U.S. companies, making it a fairer battle between the U.S. government and our liberal values and the Chinese Communist Party and its illiberal values. You're suggesting that 
we create an illiberal law that would restrain companies from trade to some extent. Uh, well, I mean, we could graft it a lot of different ways. But let's say, let's say we had a law that said that if you're an American company, you can't um, allow censorship. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Here's an right. example of what I am saying. Okay, tell I me. think that the U.S. government should sanction Chinese companies for implementing authoritarian foreign government political censorship. Oh, I see. Yes, of sanctioning course. You mean here. You mean here. Yes. The oh, yes, of course. That's a no-brainer. Uh, well, sanctioning them, sanctioning them in China. What is, that? What what is a mean? sanction? What do you mean? I will tell you. A sanction prevents U.S. companies from having um, you know, financial or trade relations with the sanctioned entity. And that, that, the, the goal of that is to put pressure on those sanctioned companies, for example, Chinese companies, to change their behavior. So what, this, what that kind of a sanction would do is change the legal environment for U.S. companies so that they would, to, to put pressure, I mean, not to, put, to, to legally prevent them from engaging in trade activity with companies that are implementing foreign government authoritarian censorship. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I get it. But I can already see the law of unintended consequences, which is the prices of everything go up here. Because those Chinese gov co companies are in a bind, they have no choice because the people will literally be put in jail. And so they don't do business with American companies any longer. And then the Chinese market is lost to American companies and they come cry, foul, foul, we have to raise our prices. Well, there's, but there's, let, let me push back against that as well. The Chinese government, so what I'm suggesting, what I'm suggesting here, uh, which is linking liberal values which you agree with and I agree with, freedom of mm -hmm. speech, sure. human rights, yep. linking that to trade behavior. Now, the, the Chinese government has already done that exceedingly successfully, they, but they have done the opposite. They have linked trade behavior with illiberal values, which is censoring to suppress, purely to, sub to, to, to suppress freedom of speech to benefit an authoritarian government. But even though they have implemented a globe-spanning regime doing that, and successfully so, their economy has not suffered. In fact, what we've seen from the Chinese government and the, the, you know, in it, the, in China's economy is that in the past 20 years, as the Chinese government has created this, this globe-spanning you know, um, linking of authoritarian values and trade, China's economy has done remarkably well. So I actually don't think that's true because U.S. companies have many, many partners that they can choose to diversify, to diversify their partners and supply chains to. And that is what both the Trump administration and the Biden administration and increasingly leaders in Europe say that democratic societies and economies should do, is strengthen their ties to like-minded societies, in other words, other democratic societies. Well, listen, Bethany, it's, it's a no-brainer. It should have been done a long time ago. The reason, one of the basic reasons that China became so rich is because Americans, you know, we sold our soul to the Chinese because of the cheap labor. I mean, we all know that. So, uh, and there was a cost for that. We've only got a couple of minutes more, Bethany. I'd like to know from your point of view as a journalist, 
What do you make of the recent uh, friendship between Putin and Xi Jinping? If you could just summarize in two minutes, what do we as Americans need to be look on? You know, need to be looking for, and what do you think about this? I think it's important not to underestimate the importance of that bilateral relationship between China and Russia. Um, some people have said it doesn't; it's not a strong relationship because it's not actually based on shared values or shared cultural and social ties. But what it is based on is also very strong, which is a shared desire to shape the the global order to make it more illiberal and less liberal. And that is a what both leaders increasingly view as an existential uh, threat: is the, this liberal order, this U.S.-led. Order. So I think that what Americans need to pay the most attention to is if Russia loses in Ukraine, how will Xi Jinping relate to Putin after that? And will he shore up a flailing society and government in Russia? Well, you know, he's got about 100 million people that they can sell stuff to. Uh, they can help, right. Re- right? They can rebuild their economy that way. They just, you know, had a really good time with some kind of military flotilla outside Alaska. I'm sure you saw that. Uh, yes. Yeah, I agree with you. One, we should not be underestimating the impact of their friendship. It really, it changes the world order, for sure. For sure. Uh, Bethany Allen, thank you so much for writing the book. I'm going to be looking for your byline. Uh, the book is called Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. I think you've done a great service to people. It's very readable. It reads in a way like a suspense novel, unfortunately. Let's hope it ends well for all of us. Bethany, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me today, Lisa. A pleasure. We'll be right back with more of the Lisa Wexler Show. Stay tuned. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com. 